If you would remain standing and turn with me to John chapter 14. We continue our study of John's gospel. John 14, we'll read verses 1 through 14. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, thank you for this, your word. Lord, much like the disciples, many of us are living with troubled hearts. Would you provide the answer today by your word and spirit? Lord, shape us and mold us and give us a longing to be with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. How much time do you spend thinking about heaven? Sometimes I just like to think about it. I think about the, the best hospitality I've ever experienced in my entire life. And that's going to pale in comparison. Can you imagine divine hospitality? Where the Lord is welcoming us to be with Him. The very Son of God. In His presence. And here is a sense, a, a taste of that. The disciples are with Jesus in the upper room. It's a, it's a foretaste of heaven. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the divide between God and man has been torn down. 
Cyril of Jerusalem, early church father, says this, At the cross, God extended His arms to the whole earth. In some senses, we could say this is what Scripture is all about. Scripture is all about divine hospitality. Heavenly doors flung open because of the work of Christ. We've already seen that this is a a bone that John has to pick. Jesus has come to bridge heaven and earth. Heaven is, is breaking into earth in the person of Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. In Christ we see heaven coming down. Do you remember when Jesus meets Nathaniel way back in chapter 1? Remember what he tells him? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Nathaniel, buckle up. You're about to see amazing things. Jesus is then the place, this holy place where heaven and earth touch. His presence is the presence of divine hospitality. Being in His presence is the goal of all of human history. With all this talk about heaven touching earth, it's easy to forget the backdrop of the scene that we're jumping into. Last week, we saw that here, even at this final Passover meal with His disciples, Jesus is being betrayed by one of His own. Even while He's saying these things, Judas is on the way to betray Jesus and sell him out. And at the end of our text last week, in addition to being betrayed by one who was close to him, one of his own, we hear that one close to him, Peter, is going to deny him three times. That's the backdrop to this scene. And also in the backdrop is Jesus has said he's going away. Put yourself in their shoes. This had to be a bewildering time. They know that he's going to be betrayed. He's told them very plainly. And in this time, Jesus has washed their feet. Judas is leaving. Peter is going to deny. And Jesus, in the middle of all that, says, I'm going away. And you you can't follow, at least not yet. What must that be like? I mean, this is everything they have lived. They have left everything to follow Jesus. And they have become convinced of his identity, at least to this point. And all this is going on. They're they're in a terrible state. They're troubled. In some senses, the structure, all of chapter 14 is built around questions. Because they have a lot of them. In the opening of 14, Jesus is going to set out to answers, answer Peter's question, where are you going? And then we'll see him address Thomas's question, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Then the kind of statement question of Philip, Lord, show us the Father. All of these kind of inform the, the bones of our text. 
What should Jesus tell a room full of scared disciples right before he goes to the cross? What's going to get them through? Better yet, what would he tell a room full of us believers, Grace Presbyterian Church, sitting here who no doubt have troubled hearts? What can he say to the troubled heart? Think positive, guys. Just look on the bright side. This will all be over soon. Oh. He doesn't tell them, think positive. He doesn't tell them, oh, it's just going to be real quick. And No. We'll see in the re- remainder of the fare- farewell discourse of Jesus, he- he's giving them solid truth. So what's going to carry us through our fears, through trials? Where do we look when we're troubled? We're living in this era where Jesus is gone. He has ascended to the Father. How can we be helped? And Jesus here begins to answer. We'll see this in four ways. Jesus is the place for the troubled heart. Second, Jesus is not just the place, he is the way. Third, Jesus is sufficient, we don't need more. And lastly, Jesus is sufficient because he supplies everything we need. Listen to what he says in verses 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Consider this grace for just a minute. Jesus is facing all the horrors that are coming his way. The betrayal is already in progress. He's going to soon be arrested, put on mock trial, whipped, publicly shamed in every way, given a cross to bear through the city and then nailed to a tree to die. He's facing all of the horrors of that, yet in this moment, He is the one providing grace and comfort to His followers. It's amazing. Listen, we were just told that He was troubled in spirit. Right? We were told that last week, and now He's answering their trouble. What a great grace. What a great grace. He's the one facing all of that. And and here they are having a meal that he provides. And he is comforting them with words of grace. Let not your heart be troubled. He doesn't just leave it at that. Like, it's okay, guys. What, What is the answer that he gives? It's right there in the text. What does he say to to a troubled heart? What's he say? Believe. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is saying you have to trust me. Trust the Father. Trust the Son. At the core of the disciples' anxiety is this. It's not all going to work out. Jesus is not going to be okay. He's going to die. So what they have to to do to answer their troubled heart is to believe in the gospel. 
Where does this eye of faith look exactly? It looks like being with Christ in glory. He's like, guys, you have to believe that this is not the end. You're about to see devastating things, but it's not over. That's not the end of the story. This eye of faith that they have, this this troubled heart is to believe and keep on believing. Look at the description Jesus gives of the, the place for them. He calls it my father's house. Where is that? Guys, you have to believe that I have a place, my father's house. The only other place that we have this expression is in chapter 2 when Jesus is speaking of what? He's speaking of the temple. This place has many rooms, many chambers. Well, where else in scripture do we have a place where there are many rooms where God dwells together with his people? Does that ring a bell? He does that in the sanctuary. He does that in the temple. The end of the Song of Moses, Exodus 16, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. There you have this big old temple and all the people are flowing into it and that's where they're going to live. The text we read earlier, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. Revelation 21, 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling place of people is with God. Child of God, what will sustain you? What will hold you through this troubled heart? It's knowing this, that in Christ, the the dividing wall from heaven to earth has been dissolved. We are invited in by faith, the redeemed people of God, dwelling with God in his presence forever. This is where Jesus is pointing his disciples just before he dies. Believe, Jesus says, trust that I am going to accomplish this for you. Let's notice how this is being accomplished. How is it that this place is being prepared Jesus says, through his leaving and coming back. He's preparing a place by leaving and then coming back. Listen to what Carson says here. He says, quote, it is not that he arrives on the scene and then begins to prepare a place. Rather, it is the going itself through the cross and resurrection that prepares a place for Jesus' disciples, end quote. How can a sinful people dwell with a holy God forever? It's because Jesus is going to go to the cross. And there he's going to die. He's going to lay his life down in place of us. Taking our place. And once he had accomplished that work, he would would conquer in glorious resurrection. And then he will ascend to the Father. 
Now through Christ, through what he has done, sinners like us are invited into his presence. This place, as we said earlier, has already started in Christ himself. He is the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. This is where angels come and go. This is exactly what Christ has come to do. Heaven is breaking in to this sinful world. And he promises that if he goes, he goes to prepare a place and he'll come back to take his followers to be with him in glory. In the end of all of history, this will be the place of Jesus and his bride. Isn't that glorious? Doesn't that answer a troubled heart? Knowing that because of what he has done, we will be with him in glory forever. The death and resurrection of Christ is the greatest act of hospitality ever. That's what it costs for Jesus to welcome sinners. In order to bring us in, this is what Jesus had to do because he loved his people and wanted to be with them forever. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What joy? What joy is before him? This is mind-blowing because for eternity, the joy before him is you and me with him forever. That's crazy. You ever long for home? You have this maybe sentimental um, longing for moments with family togetherness and just the way that you, that you think about that. I don't know if you're, if you're anything like me, those are, those are real fleeting. Th- those come and go real quick. I think the reason those moments come and go is because this home, this life is not enough. It's not enough. We're meant for and designed for an eternal home with God forever. Remember the opening lines? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we were designed for. This is true home. The presence of Christ with us. He came to pitch His tent among sinful people so that we might live with Him forever. Don't let your heart be troubled today, child of God. He has a plan to take you with Him. What He has accomplished in His crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension is to make a place for the likes of us. So Jesus is, is the destination, but He's not just the destination. He's, he's the way. Look at how Jesus concludes His remark by telling the disciples that they already know the way. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas is like, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? That's a great question. We don't know where you're going, and you're telling us that we know the way. Try to plug that into your GPS. Thomas is perplexed, just like you and I would be. 
You don't know where I'm going, but you know the way. Jesus answers in a stunning way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How can we know the way? What is the way? Not sure where we're going. Jesus cuts through all of that and says, it's me. I am both the destination and how to get to the destination. It's interesting that he doesn't just stop with the way. Yes, Jesus is the exclusive way to God, but Jesus is the way because he is the truth of God embodied. He is the way to God because he is the very life of God manifest. All life exists because he exists. Think of the profound statement that he is making. Jesus himself narrates God to the world. He says and does exactly what the Father tells him to say and do. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. Because Christ is the embodiment of the truth of God and the life of God, He proves that He is the only way to God. Please notice that Jesus isn't saying that He has blazed a trail ahead, a path. Here, I've carved all this out, now you guys walk down this way. He's not saying that. It's not what he says. He says that he himself is the way to God. Jesus doesn't provide a lamb like here, guys. Here's a a sacrificial lamb. No, he is the lamb of God. These are critical distinctions. We have to pick up on them. He doesn't just raise the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't... Just claimed it to show us where to find water. He offers us to drink of him and have life. He doesn't say for the hungry soul, here, I'll I'll feed you. He says, no, eat of me and you'll, you'll never get hungry again. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. Think of that statement and the the difference that it makes down through the centuries. To every other worldview out there, Jesus is saying that he is the only way to God, exclusive. No other. None other will work. Not the best intentions of any other system out there. It is only through Christ. He is exclusive, exclusive in being the way to God. Thomas Akempis famously says, without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. It's Him. So the question comes to us, do we claim to know God or belong to God? If that is our claim today, it is because we know Christ. We must know Christ, otherwise God is utterly unknowable and life in Him is impossible. The statement of Jesus doesn't mean that He is the correct choice among many choices. No, it's exclusive. And it means this, we will never ever make it to God on our own. No matter how sincere, no matter how religious, no matter how devout, no matter how pious, there is no other name under heaven by which men are saved in the name of Jesus. Here's another way we can apply this statement. To know Christ, to know God is 
not just knowing information, it's knowing a person. To know the way, you must know that Christ really lived. The very Son of God broke in to time and space and the, the fullness of time He was born. He really lived. He really walked this earth. He really fulfilled all righteousness. To know the way, you must know a person. To know the truth, you must know a person. People can know small truths the world over and these truths only exist because He exists. To know life, the only way to know life, eternal life, is to know Jesus Christ who is himself eternal life. Jesus concludes the statement in verse 7 with the reality that he's already taught many times, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. He could not be clear. Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. I've seen Jesus say this all over the place. And now he's saying it to troubled hearts. I think Philip represents a lot of us. With his statement slash question here in verse 8. He just said, I and the Father are one. And what's Philip say? Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. That'll be enough. Just let us, let us see the Father. What did Jesus just say? I and the Father are one. And Philip, he's just like one of us. Just show us, Jesus, just show us the Father. Then we'll be good. To Philip, like many of us, seeing is believing. It's not enough to take Jesus at his word. It's not enough to, to view him with a heart of faith like a child. It's not enough. If I don't see it, I'm not going to believe it. It's exactly what Philip is saying. Show us the Father and it'll be enough. The irony is, he's been with them a long time. And he's heard Jesus time and time again tell him the truth of the connection between he and the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's heard all of this. Just show us, show us the Father and that'll be enough. He doesn't know Jesus very well yet. Just give us direct access to the Father, an immediate display of the Father. And this, this, listen, this has been a huge issue ever since man fell way back in the garden. Right? Direct access to God, walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. And then because of the fall, separation, a ripping apart, a flaming sword and a violent angel saying, you will not come back in here. The, the cost of trying to get back in here is your own life. And since then, man has longed to see God. Remember Moses begging to just show me your glory. And he gets a tiny little glimpse from a, a crack in a rock of the back of God. There's something in us that wants to see God. We long for it. And Jesus is saying, look at me. Look at me and you will see Chapter 12, and whoever sees me, Jesus told them, sees him who sent me. Jesus will answer in verses 9 through 11, but his answer is tinged with sadness. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Hear his sadness. 
You still don't believe. You still don't get who I am. Listen, think about this. He, he could tell, Philip could tell you the color of Jesus' eyes. He lived with him for years. He heard him teach and say these things over and over and over again. Just show us the Father and that'll be enough. Again, I think there's a really powerful lesson for us and it's this, our being acquainted with Jesus, our being familiar with Jesus is not enough. It's not enough. It doesn't mean we're getting Jesus right because we know a lot of information about him. It doesn't mean we're getting him right. Our acquaintance with Jesus does not mean we get the gospel. It doesn't mean we connect the dots as to who he really is. Have I been with you so long, Quinn? And you still want more? I think this could be asked of each one of us here. What, what more do you want? The problem is there's nothing more that God could give. Here's the rest of Jesus' answer to Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Then he says his words are the Father's words. His actions are the Father's actions. He reiterates what he has already told them many times. He's telling Philip, if you, if you look into my eyes, you are looking into the eyes of God. If you hear the words coming out of my mouth, Philip, you hear the words of God. If you see the actions that I do, these miraculous signs of which John has highlighted seven, but then he goes on to say that the whole world would be full of books written about the wondrous things that Jesus has done. If you see those things, Philip, you are seeing the actions of God. The answer for Philip's doubts is not in proof. He doesn't need more proof. He, he, he has all the proof standing in front of him in Jesus, talking to him. For us who are in this room, who, who do not see Jesus with our physical eyes, but with eyes of faith, what more do we need? We have the Word of God preserved by the Spirit. We too are invited to look with eyes of faith and see the glory of God revealed in the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do we need more than Jesus? Do we demand of God that we see something else? Everything that God has to give is found in Christ. Listen, here's a really important point. If, if you are not satisfied with Jesus, the crucified and risen Son, then no vision of the Father will ever be enough for you. If Him, if His life and death and resurrection is not enough for you, you will never see anything else that will convince you of the truth of Christ, ever. This is true of all of us. Only Jesus can satisfy. No one comes to the Father except through Him. 
communion. In just a minute, we'll commune at the table. And it is a reminder to our senses of this reality. That we are hungry and only He will satisfy. Nothing else. There's not a vision that, that Jesus could have given to Philip. And Philip be like, okay, now I get it. He's right in front of him. Lastly, Jesus is sufficient because he supplies all that we need. What do we have when we have Christ? Well, Jesus says we have the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Again, the Lord links belief and faith in Him and work. The greatest work that we will ever do as Christians is to believe. To trust Him. This work is going to continue. It's going to grow. It's going to expand. Jesus ties all of this to the reality that He is going away to the Father. And we're going to see later, His going away means the Spirit is coming. And when the Spirit of God comes, then His bride, the church, explodes like a bomb and goes all over the world. I think the backdrop is still Philip's question. He wants to see something glorious. He wants to see power. He wants to see beauty. and He wants to see the glory of God. And Jesus points him to the church. He says, you, you want to see something. Watch what is about to happen. The church is going to expand. I'm going to go away and the church is going to explode. And people are going to carry the gospel. The, the good news of the gospel all over. And people are going to convert. And there are going to be churches in places where there was no hope. There's going to be hope. You want to see something incredible? Watch this. The church spreads like a fire in a field. And it's going to be astonishing to watch. And for 2,000 years that's been true. Jewish carpenter, the creator of the world. Lastly, he says this work of belief and these greater works that are going to be accomplished are going to be marked by prayer in the life of the believer. It, it is, ironically enough, uh, an invitation to name it, claim it, prayer. It actually is. But whose name? That's the issue. Whose name is being claimed? That's the, that's the centerpiece of this prayer. You ask it in my name. You ask your prayer life utterly submitted to the person and work of Christ. That's exactly what he's teaching. prayer list begins with asking to see the glory of God revealed in Christ. Have you ever asked that? Have you ever asked to see God? It's not, it's not a bad question. It's not a bad impulse. With hearts of faith, look to Christ. When you ask of God, ask 
in the person and work of Christ. Frame your prayers there. He will always answer. In response to Philip, Jesus is saying, yes, Philip, I and the Father are one, and I am all you need to see. He's telling all of us here, I am utterly sufficient for you. Nothing else will do. He's telling all of us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do we believe it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Help us, Lord. We're we're a lot like Philip. We hear all these glorious truths, and yet they often seem insufficient. We want more. Lord, would you correct that in us today? Let us rest in knowing that we have you, Christ, our Savior and King. Pray in his name. Amen.